first, though, starting on a very sad note, and some new numbers were released earlier today from BC's chief coroner. In October 2021, 201 people died as a result of drug toxicity, bringing the total number of deaths in the first 10 months of 2021 to 1,782. The 201 deaths due to drug toxicity in October represent the largest loss of life experienced in a single month in the toxic drug crisis. That was BC's Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe speaking earlier today. We are joined now by Brad West, who is the Mayor of Port Coquitlam. Mayor West, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. I know you were commenting about this crisis on social media and the numbers are horrific. I don't know how else to 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 talk about them, but clearly whatever we're doing to try and fight this crisis, it's not working. So what were you tweeting about and trying to raise more uh, attention to? You're right. It is a a staggering loss of life. Uh, We have had literally thousands of our fellow citizens killed. And what I am trying to draw attention to is the fact that we hear very little, in fact, nothing from our government at the provincial and federal level about the efforts that they are making, if there are any, to keep fentanyl and its precursors out of our country. There's been a lot of uh, work that has gone into understanding where this comes from, primarily from China, pouring into Canada, pouring into British Columbia, uh, and being used by drug cartels, and organized crime to make billions of dollars. I mean, they are just profiting off the deaths of our own people to the tune of billions of dollars. And there seems to be very little attention paid to the fact that this stuff uh, is, you know, this is not, this is a more recent development. This, you know, where it be fentanyl, carfentanyl, you know, this is a new development, having this stuff come into the country uh, and, and be so poisonous and so effective at killing people and so little effort apparently made to stop it from happening, to stop it from coming in. So it just, to me, it seems like we've, they've, I guess they haven't admitted it, but we've basically uh, said they've won. We we can't stop it. We're not going to try. And and so I'm really concerned about that because uh, this is just going to continue uh, you know, the, the, the deaths are going to continue to pile up. And we do need that all of the above solution. There's a lot of focus on, on safe supply and some of the other things that get talked about. Obviously, treatment needs to be a big part of it. But how about the people who are making the billions of dollars who are directing these operations? Uh, they seem to feel quite comfortable in coming to British Columbia and, and doing their business. And I think we need to make life a lot more difficult for them. Uh, you mentioned as well safe supply, and there has been a lot of talk about decriminalization in that that would go a long way to at least keeping people safer on the streets. Do you think that can be done at the same time? Can we go down that route of safe supply decriminalizing while also going after these drug cartels? I don't see why we shouldn't. Why would we give a free pass to the people who are making billions of dollars 
uh, and profiting off of the death and misery of our fellow citizens. I mean, we we always seem to, no matter the issue in our province, we always seem to be forced into, well, it's either this or it's either that. And I reject that. You know, getting people a non-toxic drug supply and and hopefully getting them into some treatment, which is the other piece of this, to get people off drugs is something that's got to happen. But I don't believe we should be giving a pass to the organized crime, uh, the the drug cartels, and the others who are using our province as their playground and killing thousands of our people. I mean, that's just an, an absolute cop-out, and it's embarrassing, and it does such a disservice to the people of this province that we don't have leadership that will stand up and, and say, you know, we're going to tackle it. I get no silver bullet, no easy solution. But for God's sakes, let's try. Let's try. Let's say we're going to do some things. Let's raise the issue. I don't hear about it. I, 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 there's men and women on the front lines in policing uh, and at CBSA who do uh, a, a hell of a job with the tools that they have. But where's the elected leadership on this? Why aren't they talking about it? Why aren't they laying out a plan? It's just their MIA. And whenever you ask, when the question is put to to anybody in any of those positions about the street level drug crime, because you can go down to any... There are known streets in Vancouver. I'm sure there are in other places in Metro Vancouver as well. It is open drug dealing. You can see it happening in front of you, and it's happening as if people are trading glasses of orange juice. And if you ask, well, why is this allowed to happen? That's not legal. The, the, the answer is often, well, the dealers are users too. The dealers are also victims. So how do we get past that? Because those dealers are also killing people. Are we, do we go after them? Do we go after whoever it is they're getting it from? Where would you start there? Well, first off, I don't think you can just turn a blind eye to it and say, well, you know, that's just the way it is. Um, Yes, I agree. Many of them are victims uh, as well. But that does not excuse the the behavior that's killing other people. So it it can't be just a blind eye. I'm not suggesting you go and round them all up and throw them in jail. But the people who I'm interested in going after are are exactly what you said. you got to follow the food chain. Okay, it's not the people, it's not the the poor people who are uh, addicted themselves who are trying to survive on the streets. I'm talking about the person driving around in a Lamborghini, having bought millions of dollars worth of real estate in Metro Vancouver. You know, that's that's where I'm interested in going, because those are the people who are directing this. Those are the people who are connected internationally who are facilitating the smuggling of fentanyl, car fentanyl, and its precursors into our country. You know, those are the folks who we should not be letting off the hook. And, and once again, you know, we, we get, as I said, forced into this, well, it's either this or it's either that. Uh, either, you know, it, it's just all safe supply uh, or it's, you know, lock up all the victims. No. I mean, that's just this type of attitude does such a disservice to our province and our people. We have to be a little bit more sophisticated in our thinking and be able to say, you know what, if we're going to make a dent in this issue and we need to, it's going to require a whole bunch of things happening. And it is going to include going after those people. Like I said, I'm talking about the person driving around in, in the Lambo or in the Porsche who's, as we know, the Vancouver model, right? The Vancouver model, who has profited 
in the in the tune of millions and billions of dollars washing that money clean in our in our real estate we need to focus on that in many ways it's it's the the head of the snake and you got to cut it off uh, you talk uh, about the Vancouver model, and certainly anybody who has read Sam Cooper's book uh, will know about that. He talks about it at length. We've had the, the Cullen Commission looking at money laundering. So we have the information. We clearly know that. You'd have to be completely cut off from, from everything to not know where this is happening, how this is happening. So who needs to take the first step, do you think, or who would you like to see uh, actually take the first step and change how we're dealing with this? Well, I, I think it's got to come from the people that we elect to lead our, our country and our province. You know, I, I think, again, I'm not going to say, well, you know, it, it's as easy as flipping a switch and then, OK, all of a sudden everything changes. But what what troubles me is, you know, <laughs> politicians are really quick to tell us everything that they're doing, all the good things that they're doing. And, you know, there's announcements all the time. I just don't hear about it. I don't for an issue that is impacting our province to, to such a, a, a great degree, you know, why is this not at the top of the agenda? Why are they, you know, not pulling together a cross-jurisdictional task force? Why aren't they giving this the, the resources and the attention that it needs? And, and saying along the lines of what you just said, our current approach clearly is not working. So let's change it up. What are some of the ideas? What can we do? You know, I, I don't want to be naive about this stuff, but it, it just seems to me that we're just kind of shrugging our shoulders. And as we do that, the bodies continue to pile up. So you got to take the bull by the horns and you got to have leadership that says, this is going to be one of our top priorities and start to pull together the pieces to make a real dent in this. Uh, just before I let you go, uh, Mayor West, uh, we know that this is everywhere, obviously some places worse than others. Is it an issue, uh, addiction and drug dealing in Port Coquitlam? And if so, what do you do in your city? Absolutely it is. We're not immune to it like every other community. And I regularly meet with uh, the police in, in our community about what they're able to do to try and address it. I mean, in many respects, they're at their wits end too. I mean... You know, I know often they can be portrayed as the bad guys and all this, but, you know, they're overwhelmed by the scale and the scope of the problem. Uh, and so we, we work with them. We work with our local health authority. You know, the city, unfortunately, doesn't have the, the jurisdiction to say, well, we're going to open, you know, this treatment facility or we're going to, uh, you know, launch a task force to try and stop uh, the drugs from coming into our community. So, what I can do then is what I'm doing right now is trying to, you know, channel, I think, the frustration I hear from thousands of British Columbians, people I talk to on the street all the time who, you know, who just look at this and shake their heads at it and just cannot understand why we're not able to get a handle on it, why we just seem to have waved the white flag on this issue. Uh, and, and hopefully by speaking to folks like you and you're good enough to have me on, we can start to put some public pressure on those who are in a position to act to do so. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for today, but I do appreciate you joining the program today. Brad West, thank you so much. Thanks very much, Joe. Thanks for being with us today. A bit later on in the program, we're going to talk about labor shortages and what small businesses are due 
doing to try and get more employees to get them in the door and to get them to stay in those positions. We're going to talk about that in about an hour from now. Right now, though, taking a look at the cleanup that is taking place in many parts of this province, we know it's going to be weeks until those major roadways are fixed and back up and operating. But a lot of attention is also being paid to the flood-prone areas, the dike upgrades that are being talked about now to stop this from happening in the future. How much attention, though, is being paid to salmon stocks? Well, Lena Aziz joins me now, campaign manager with the Watershed Watch Salmon Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. We've been focused so much uh, as uh, as we have on the structures, on the highways that have washed out, on the flooding in the Fraser Valley and elsewhere. Uh, focusing on that, I know your group focuses more on salmon. What is your take on while we build back and build back in this area, how do we do that in a way that is good for wild salmon? Well, we've already, we've been, we have been doing this work for a number of years now, trying to raise awareness of the fact that salmon are quite impacted by um, our human-made flood control structures, such as dikes, pump stations, and gates. Uh, when we actually, we decided to map the problem and realized there were about 1,500 kilometers of salmon habitat that was impacted by these flood control structures. So over the past many years, we've been trying to uh, identify what solutions could look like. And so right now, as we're thinking about salmon impacted by our recent spate of atmospheric rivers and associated floodings, um, right now is a perfect time to start talking about these solutions and, and what local governments, the province and the feds can be supporting in moving these forward. Um, we know that in some areas we're going to have to build back the dikes. We know that we're going to need to perhaps upgrade some of the pump stations that were severely stressed during the high water events. And when those happen and if those happen, we want to make sure that fish are considered in, in that process, which means Let's uh, put in fish-friendly gates um, so that they're open most of the time except during high water events like what we had. Or let's put in fish-friendly pump stations so that when the pumps are working and pulling water um, from behind the dikes into the main stem of the Fraser River, for example, they're pulling water and they're pulling fish safely out of those systems. Because fish are attracted to moving water. So you're going to have little salmon, little trout, and all of the other fish that live in these waterways, including amphibians, kind of getting pulled towards um, pump stations. And currently, the, kind, the pump stations we have, most of the pump stations, most of the 100 pump stations we have in the lower mainland are fish unfriendly, which means when they pull water, they're also pulling fish and killing them in the mechanism. So there are definitely solutions that exist that would that would um, allow for fish to survive moving through these, uh, these, these structures without needing to be killed in the process. So when there you, are also... Oh, mm-hmm, sorry, sorry. Just, so when you talk about that uh, kind of sh- shifting from the pump stations that we've currently seen where fish can be killed in them to a, a more modern, to a, a fish-friendly pump station, are those being used elsewhere or, or have you seen examples of, of those in place and in use? Mm-hmm. So there are... Um, As I mentioned earlier, there are about 100 pump stations in the lower mainland. Just a handful, maybe three or four, are actually fish-friendly. So we know that the technology exists. We know it's been implemented 
very few and far between in the lower mainland, and we know that it, um, that more more is needed. Uh, we know in uh, just across the border in Washington State and Oregon, it's becoming uh, you know just the norm to use fish-friendly flood control, and uh, it definitely happens in other jurisdictions around the world. The Netherlands is one place. The United Kingdom, um, yeah, so it definitely exists. The technology exists. We just need to start adopting it here. Right. And do you know, does it come at a higher cost or, or are the costs associated uh, with with this new technology? All things considered, uh, you know, travel, travel, for example, because these are uh, these are structured infrastructures that would come from uh, Europe or, or the UK, for example. Um, the costs actually end up being similar. So it's not uh, the, the differences in cost really isn't an issue. The issue is that local governments have to compete with their other local governments for funding to install and upgrade their flood control structures. And that's a really unfair process because it it means you're competing um, to get money from the province and the cheaper the project, the more likely it is to get funded. So the province needs to change their criteria so that funding, uh, they they reward uh, local governments that are considering fish uh, fish habitat and also uh, many other benefits of improving flood control infrastructure, not just with gray structures that are, you know, like hard concrete structures, but also with greener solutions and more natural defense solutions as well. We need to change the way we, we need to reimagine how we uh, look at water and how we live with water. And it sounds like you're talking about as well, local governments and the province as well, kind of collaborating on this or working closer uh, to make sure it's kind of beneficial because it's not as though a river or a waterway running through several communities. It doesn't know the difference, obviously, uh, between the different uh, communities and which jurisdiction it's in. Exactly. Collaboration is key. And a wonderful example of how that worked out in the Lower Mainland is with the recent installation of a fish-friendly floodgate on the lower Agassiz Slough in the district of Kent. That was a wonderful, that is a wonderful example of, of what happens when a local government is aware of, because of a lot of the work we've been doing, aware of uh, opportunities to put in alternative kinds of uh, flood control. Um, and the government, the provincial government was interested in, fu- interested in funding greener, uh, greener infrastructure. So we were able to kind of come together collaborate and and install this fish-friendly floodgate. So it can happen. It just needs to be normalized. Are there specific areas where you think it needs to be focused on first uh, as far as larger waterways or particular areas in the Fraser Valley where it's uh, more urgent, you think, that we make these changes? I think we need to focus on the low-lying areas. So unfortunately, what we've done as humans, is um, as we've built up our uh, communities and put in, you know, large dikes and pump stations and everything, we've got really comfortable with the idea of living in floodplains. But that's a really bad idea because we're constantly putting ourselves at risk of flooding. Floods are natural. They happen all the time. But uh, it's, it's our need to constantly control water. It just it doesn't seem to work. And we saw that. Unfortunately, we saw that. Um, happened in the Sumas Prairie, where Sumas Lake uh, kind of returned temporarily um, to its uh, to its old floodplain, uh, to its old old lake bed. So yeah, I think we need to focus on areas where we know um, salmon are actively using their habitat, and that's a, a number of waterways in the Lower Fraser. 
and, and where we know we can, uh, the work that we do will protect communities and protect farms. All right. Well, Lena, it's a very interesting uh, idea. And, and since we do uh, tend to focus on so many other things, uh, nice to talk about specifically these floodgates and pump stations. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this. Yes, you're welcome. Well, if you have noticed that your bill at the grocery store has been going up, you are not alone. Many Canadians are seeing the increased prices. And the bad news is they are, well, they're not going anywhere. And in fact, they are going to get worse in some scenarios. Let's bring on our next guest, Alyssa Gerhardt, a PhD student in the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Dalhousie, also worked on this new report. It is the Canada's Food Price Report report. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you break down a little bit? I know this report looked at all types of different foods, but what specifically were you looking at and what did you find as far as food prices? So we are predicting a total increase in food prices of 5 to 7% in 2022. Uh, so in a dollar amount uh, for a family of four, that would be an increase of $966 um, from 2021. And this is the largest predicted expenditure increase uh, in the history of the report. Now, there are some categories where we, where we are predicting higher increases, and those are dairy and restaurants at 6 to 8%, and bakery and vegetables at uh, 5 to 7% increases. And how did you come up with those numbers? So we use a number of different um, models. Um, so we were a national report. Uh, with, so the, it's Dalhousie University, University of Saskatchewan, University of British Columbia, and University of Guelph. And each school is responsible for coming up with forecasting models uh, for the upcoming year. There's a number of different uh, methodologies that they would use to do so. And then we find some common ground in the forecasting. But as you can imagine, uh, it's been a difficult couple of years because um, we typically use historical data. And the last two years have been all over the place um, due to the unprecedented nature of covid Right. So so let's go through uh, kind of those numbers again. When you talk about dairy and restaurants uh, going uh, six to eight percent, what what is driving or what is fueling those increases? So there's a number of factors that are fueling or driving the increases of food overall. But if you're looking at particular categories, restaurants, um, of course, they're facing labor market challenges right now. Um, but they're also dealing with overall price increases of food. Um, they buy, you know, a lot of food. And so when the price goes up, they also have to deal with that increased cost. And then when we are looking at dairy, uh, the Canadian Dairy Commission has recommended an 8.4% increase in farm gate milk price. And this recommendation is to mitigate the increased cost uh, for farm gate inputs and processing that they have seen over um, the last a little bit. And moving on then, you, you mentioned as well bakery items and vegetables, a slightly less uh, increase, but still substantial, 5 to 7%. Are they the same types of issues there? Um, with vegetables, of course, weather is a big factor. And um we are very dependent on imported vegetables out of season. So any kind of weather that's going to affect uh, 
areas such as California or Arizona are going to have an impact on our food prices. And bakery, um, we did see drought conditions uh, out west um, this earlier this year. And because there's a lot of forward buying, in particularly grain, we're only starting to see uh, the impacts of those droughts on our prices now or into 2022. I know uh, the report also uh, takes a look at things like a carbon tax because uh, when that's, uh, I think when there's a a truck driver deliveries that are paying for that, oftentimes the cost does get uh, passed on to the consumer. Uh, Does this report take a look at those types of taxes and how those play a role as well? So we do take that into consideration. The only thing right now with the carbon tax is there's not enough data to make any conclusions about what what kind of impact it is having on food prices and whether it is um, in any sense. But that's something we want to look for, um, for in the upcoming years and include that in the report. All right. Is there anywhere or any type of food that you found would, would stay static or even have a decline when it comes to cost? So meat, which may be a surprise to many because um, meat has substantially increased in 2021. We are uh, predicting a zero to two percent increase, so possibly a slight increase. But we have to remember that meat is meat products are at a pretty substantial high as it is right now. So although it seems like they're not going to increase much more, we already are paying a lot more for meat products um, currently. Right. So if somebody might look at that and think, oh, that's great. That's not a huge increase, uh, but not so great because that means it's mainly because the increases are already there. Yeah. So the, um, even our predictions last year for meat, um, the prices in 2021 exceeded what we had predicted. So they they are at um, quite a high at this time. So, yes, it might seem optimistic, but you're still paying a lot for meat. Does your report look at how Canadians respond to food prices as well as far as getting creative or do eating habits change in that when you look at the meat prices? I know when we were seeing those huge increases, uh, I'm I'm imagining there would have been people who stopped buying it. It's not like you have to mm-hmm. have that. It's not a necessity. Do, do they do the prices have a have an impact on the habits of people? So there is indication that Canadians are aware of rising food prices is something that they've been noticing throughout 2021 and um, particularly in in meat uh, in the meat category and um, there is indication that Canadians have changed um, some Canadians have changed their consumption habits around meat because of the high price so whether that means supplementing it with another protein source or just reducing their intake overall there has been some consumer, um, you know, a change around around that food product. And another interesting thing we highlight in the report is um, consumers' perception of a con- concept of shrinkflation, which means you're getting a less volume of food in a package, but for the same price or a higher price. Um, so that's something Canadians are also aware of in the stores. Hmm. And are we seeing a lot of that or a lot of uh, shrinkflation? It's hard to say how much is actually happening, but Canadians are perceiving that it's happening. Um, so it's something that we'd have to look in, 
into further, it might be difficult to to measure that. But um, there's definitely perceptions of that happening. And just one other question, when you talked about as well, uh, vegetables, when we import so many things that are um, perhaps out of season where we live and we're importing others, and then of course we are subject to the weather and if there are issues in other countries, how much does that play into it? Or as far as does that uh, kind of push people to consider buying something else or not depending, I guess, so much on imported food? Mm -hmm. So especially in the last two years, um, and I think this stems from the onset of COVID and um, a lot of insecurity around our food supply chain. And think back to the panic buying craze at the beginning of 2020. Um, People, there is a a renewed interest in buying local and supporting local, not only to support the local economy, but because there's a security in knowing that you can go to the farm down the road and get the vegetables you need or the eggs you need rather than, you know, relying on a longer food supply chain to deliver them to you. So um, there's definitely been um, a lot more of consumer preference around local products. All right. Well, interesting findings and certainly something that has an impact on everyone. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks for having me. Getting uh, some pretty amazing pictures that people are sending in of food prices, actual pictures of items in stores. We'll talk a bit more about that in the final hour of the program. That's after we talked about the price of food report that came out earlier today. Right now, though, we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about labor shortages. And small businesses are reporting having a lot of difficulty, not only trying to plan ahead for expansion, but trying to meet the needs for their current operations. And joining me to talk more about this is Seth Scott, who is a senior policy analyst with BC and Northern Canada with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Seth, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on. Uh, This is something we've been talking about throughout the pandemic and taking a look at businesses and the labor shortage. But I know this report also goes before that and talks about how a lot of businesses and particularly small businesses were already experiencing this big labor shortage even before then. Yeah, I mean, so labor shortages are are not new for for a lot of small businesses. and, And I'm sure if you you talk to one, they would tell you that, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, it's a complex issue and, and there's a lot of things going on, you know, demographic shifts and skills mismatches and all sorts of things. And, and the pandemics only made it worse. Uh, you know, only 37% of small businesses in BC right now are back to normal staffing levels. And, you know, 59% uh, of businesses in, in BC report having some, some, some labor shortages. That's the fourth worst in all of Canada. Um, and that really means that in any place in BC, in any town in BC, if you walk down Main Street and went to a small business, one, over one in two of them would tell you, yeah, uh, we don't have enough staff. That, that's really not good. Uh, you know, as we go into the holiday season and as businesses are, are, are going to have a long, long road to recovery. So what is causing it? Because you're right, you can walk down any street and I in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, there are help wanted signs everywhere. But again, that didn't only start happening during the pandemic. I remember covering stories about that before the pandemic and particularly talking about restaurants that were really trying to find workers and couldn't. So what has what has caused this this labor shortage? 
you know, they, yeah, there's, there's, there's a, well, like I said, it, it's very complex. I mean, you know, there, there's some, there's some demographic changes in Canada, you know, people are getting older and retiring or, 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 or and, you know, that, that's kind of a broader issue. I'm not a demographer, but, but that's definitely, that's definitely an issue there. There's a big skills um, mismatch, you know, uh, people have, have left jobs and uh, during during the pandemic and 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 they're, they're maybe not coming back to the, the same job that they had before or you know there's there's uh, vacancies opening up now with people retiring and and, and people cut, younger people don't have the skills that that others need um, you know it's always been a big issue but you know it, it's getting it's definitely getting worse and, and that's really not that's really not great uh, for small businesses that are trying to survive as it is. And when you talk about the the right skill set or not enough people with the skill sets, how much of it is uh, people that have maybe done a restart or realized, hey, you know, this isn't really what I want to be doing and and have gone in a different direction, leaving these shortages? Yeah, so, I mean, that's that's a hard issue, you know, in terms of of, of what we're looking at and our data, you know, what what we know, I I can't tell you uh, that lots of people have, have Oh, this is exactly how many people left, and and this is exactly why they're leaving, and they've upgraded their skills. But what we do know is that, you know, businesses are telling us that they're putting a job out that needs a specific sort of skill, uh, and you know, they're coming back and they're not getting any applicants, or they're getting applicants that are not even close to the level that they're looking for for that particular job, and that's a big issue. And that's, I mean, that's after you know, eighty-two percent of of small businesses have have increased wages. Uh, to, to, to try to attract more applicants. And, and you know, half of those are, are, are finding that it wasn't even helpful because they're not getting applicants with the skills that they need um, to, to, to fill that position. Hmm, it's interesting because that, that has often been one of the arguments, hasn't it, that if people or businesses, if they would just pay more or offer a more competitive payment and perhaps benefits, that that would bring people into and make them want to come work there. But it seems like that, like you're saying, it's not just about offering more money and making sure you're offering what would be considered an attractive compensation package. Yeah. I mean, and, and businesses are willing to do that, right? I mean, 82%, that, that's extremely high for a small business and, and, and they are competing against, um, you know, a number of other small businesses, but also, uh, you know, larger uh, corporations, businesses uh, that have a, a bigger labor pool. But, you know that 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 can be considerable for for a business, and, and they've increased wages, and, and and they're just not getting, uh, they're just not getting any applicants in some cases, and, and getting applicants with not the right skills in others, um, and so that's a big issue. So you know we definitely need to start working on on some some policy fixes uh, to ensure that you know we can we can help with labor shortages right now, so businesses can meet their demands immediately, and then you know fixing some of these longer term issues as we go into the future. So when you talk about we need to work on policy changes, what do you think would be a priority or what should be at that top of that list as far as what to tackle? Yeah, I mean, we have a number of, of solutions. I mean, you know, training is, is a big thing, you know, encouraging, you know, work integrated learning programs, you know, working with universities and colleges to make sure that, you know, skills are matching up with what small businesses are, are needing, Um and, you know, in maybe some sort of tax credits or, or, or funding uh, for worker on the job training. You know, if you're training someone on the job as a small business, some sort of, of tax credit to, to, to incentivize hiring people maybe that don't have uh, the skills that you need right now. But, you know, you can train them and work, work towards getting them those skills. 
um, you know, other tax credits and release, uh, you know, reducing EI premiums uh, for hiring staff or, or tax holidays for newer hires, things like that. And then, you know, just making sure that, you know, some employment insurance programs uh, don't discourage individuals, you know, from returning to work and, 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 and things like that. So I, I think those are, are probably some, some good fixes. How big of a factor is it right now with insurance uh, with the, or with the uh, uninsur- uh, unemployment insurance programs and, and being a deterrent for working? Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the top three um, uh, issues that small businesses are telling us. You know, they're not getting any applicants. They're not getting applicants with skills. And, you know, some people are, are not coming back just because, um, you know, the, it, there's more incentive on, on the ER or the CRB programs. Um, so, you know, it's not that people are, you know, people obviously go in this progress for, for a number of reasons. Um, and, but, you know, making sure that, that, you know, when the time comes and small businesses need employees and, and they want to provide services and, and goods to their community, that they, they have staff and that, that EI is not, you know, uh, a disincentive uh, to come back. And something you mentioned earlier as well, because I think we often kind of equate this not being able to find staff with jobs that would be considered minimum wage jobs and easy to make that connection saying, well, if somebody can get a higher paying job, you'd probably want to go for that rather than the minimum wage. But it sounds like that's not exactly what we're talking about here when you are saying that it's skilled workers and and likely jobs that, that are paying a pretty good salary. Yeah, I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, it is possible, you know, hospitality, for example, and tourism are, are hit hard, and, and that is true. But, you know, uh, for example, there's other areas like, you know, uh, construction and, and trucking, things like that. You know, we, we've heard from a member, it's in the report that, um, you know, they needed uh, some talent to, to fill positions like uh, mechanics and, and truck drivers. And those are, those are pretty, you know, those are, those are decently paid positions with, with, with training. Um, so, yeah, it's not just, uh, you know, kind of lower paid uh, workers. It's kind of a full uh, labor market issue. And with the things that you listed then as far as getting out of this or fixing this problem, what kind of timeline do you think we're looking at? It's not like people can be trained overnight, but what kind of a timeline do you think if we really started to pay attention to this and tried to fix it to get to that point where we won't see such a huge labor shortage? You know, I, I couldn't even venture to guess a, a timeline of, of when this, you know, will be fixed because I don't think there's a silver bullet. What I can tell you is that, you know, it, it, we should start now, right? We, these policy measures should start now and, and hopefully, you know, they'll pick up and, 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 and move this labor shortage uh, away a, a lot quicker. So I guess what I would say is how long? I'm not sure. I hope it's short for the sake of small businesses. Uh, I, I hope it's short. But you know, what we can do is, is choose to make those those policy interventions right now, uh, choose to make those decisions right now, provide relief in, immediately right now, and, and, and hopefully it'll work itself out. All right, Seth, Scott, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much, though, for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me on.